Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. What I've seen on NYU's campus and what I've seen in polls all over, I mean, CNN even, uh, a Harvard University poll last May showed that people between the ages of 18 and 29, not just Democrats, not just leftists, 51% of people between 18 and 29 no longer support the system of capitalism. And that's not me asking you to make a radical statement about capitalism, but I'm just telling you that my experience is that the younger generation is moving left on economic issues. And I've been so excited to see how Democrats have moved left on social issues. Uh, as a gay man, I've been very proud to see you fighting for our rights and for uh, many, many Democratic leaders fighting for our rights. But I wonder if there's anywhere you feel that the Democrats could move farther left to a more populist message, the way the alt-right has sort of captured this populist strain on the right wing, if you think we could make a, a more stark contrast to right wing economics. Well, I thank you for your question, uh, but I have to say we're capitalist, and that's just the way it is. However, we do think uh, that capitalism is not necessarily meeting the needs with the income inequality that we have. In House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi became a member of Congress through a special election 30 years ago. She has led House Democrats for the last 14 years, including a stint as the first female speaker. But the Democratic Party's losing streak in recent special elections prompted some House colleagues to question her leadership. Nancy Pelosi was a great speaker. She is a great leader, but her time has come and gone. I think it's time for change, and these election results frankly show that. If we're going to regain the majority in 2018, uh, we have to have new leadership. You That's think right. Nancy Pelosi is more toxic than Donald Trump? You know what? The honest answer is, in some areas of the country, yes, she is. That's the honest answer. Today I'm here with Stephen Jaffe, who is primary Nancy Pelosi in District 12 in California. He is an attorney that has worked for years for employment practices representing employees and has also been an activist in many other areas. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about the events that led up to you uh, running your primary race against Nancy Pelosi. What, was, what were the things that happened that led you to that decision? Well, it was a, a gradual process that I went through. Um, started in about 2015 when I uh, decided I was going to volunteer for Bernie Sanders, uh, which I did. I volunteered locally, and uh, then I was recruited by the national campaign to um, go to uh, several spots, but most particularly uh, Nevada, to go uh, legally oversee and supervise what turned out to be really chaotic Nevada caucuses. Um, I did that and, um, of course, followed Bernie's campaign very closely, gave him a lot of money. And um, when he was deprived of the nomination, uh, the 2016 nomination, um, I, got, I got very upset. I got pissed off. <laughs> and that even drove me. So did me, I. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I, do, I, I do, do believe to this day, and I think it's, um, probably indisputable at this point that he was cheated out of it, that, that he could have won and did win, mm -hmm. but uh, that the forces in control of the party who remain there 
um, just didn't didn't want him to run. So um, we all know what happened. Then, of course, there was the election of um, 45, which horrified me mm-hmm. and further motivated me. And Bernie was always talking about um, don't just talk the talk. You should walk the walk, run for office. So that's what kind of pushed me into it. The reason I'm running in San Francisco is just because of where I live. The fact that Ms. Pelosi is the incumbent, um, some people say, you know, oh, you don't have a chance and it's really daunting, but I have to, I have to run where I live. And mm-hmm. um, because, because I've had a long career and I have a great deal of, of life experience in, in a lot of different areas, uh, I, did, I did not feel running for Congress was out of the question. So um, here I am. Indeed. Um, you mentioned briefly that you had gone to Nevada to deal with some of the shenanigans that you saw there. Tell us a little bit about the experience uh, and what was the outcome. Well, there's a real difference between hearing about what happened from media or hearing about what happened from even other people or friends who were there and seeing, seeing it with your own eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Um, which I did in Nevada. I saw uh, various kinds of cheating and, and deception that were uh, inflicted on Nevada caucus voters to uh, Bernie Bernie voters to dissuade mm-hmm. them or prevent them from going in and expressing their support for Bernie. So um, it was uh, kind of disillusioning a little bit because uh, I'm a guy that tries to be honest all the time and I assume everyone else is supposed to act the same way, and they don't, of course. So I was disillusioned and uh, and angered by what was going on. So uh, that was quite an experience and motivated me for what's come since. Right. And as far as Nancy Pelosi being the person you're running against, you know, she's she's viewed at this point by a lot of progressives as not somebody they want in office. So it might not be the detriment that it appears to be on the outside. But on the other side, you have to deal with Caldem and establishment types of uh, tactics that they're using. I know, for example, here in District 34, we have some delegates that are trying to change the endorsement process. Currently, if you're an incumbent, you benefit from a host of rules that allow the incumbent, incumbent to stay as the endorsed person or the one that gets the most support. Have you had any internal problems dealing with Caldem or the D Triple C or any of the other entities that are running the Democratic Party? Oh yes, um, <laughs> I, I can tell. I can tell you, um, and, and those continue now. But I can tell you what's happened so far um, mm-hmm. under the bylaws uh, and the automatic. And first of all, I'm against any automatic endorsements. I think I that's do. undemocratic. I think it's undemocratic, and I think candidates should be uh, required to run for office on their records, um, not just be automatically endorsed. The automatic endorsement process has actually resulted in several incumbent Democrats here in California presently accused of sex harassment and other bad things being automatically endorsed by the party, which is uh, kind of a twilight zone situation, but that's what's happened. Um, In my case... Uh, in order to challenge the uh, automatic endorsement process and to require the incumbent to participate in the regular endorsement process and not get it automatically, uh, mm-hmm. the challenger has to collect the signatures 
of right. 20% of the delegates in the district. Well, I turned in, and in my case, um, the, the candidate, which is my campaign, was provided a list of delegates. And we were told you need 20% of these. There were 183 people on that list, which means we needed 37 of them in order to prevent uh, Ms. Pelosi from uh, getting the automatic endorsement. Well, right. we, turned in four, we turned in 41 signatures. Um, three of those were disqualified, but, when, but we actually had 37 signatures. But what, what the, what the D, uh, CDP did, California Democratic Party, after I turned in my signatures, okay, after the door was closed, I heard from the CDP saying, you don't have enough signatures. You're and kidding. I said, what are you talking? No, I'm not kidding. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, I have enough. And I said, last time I went to school, here's the math, how it works. They said, no, no, you used the wrong list. There's another list with 190 names that's bigger, and that's the one we use. And I said, oh, really? What list is that? And it was never provided to me or disclosed to me. And, oh, okay. Uh, so they essentially moved the goalposts here or the goal line right. after the game after the game was uh, over in progress. And I have appealed through the first level of the uh, CDP rules, uh, some mm -hmm. entity called the um, Compliance Review Commission. And um, I lost six to zero. They said, too bad, too bad, Mr. Jaffe. That's the way it goes. Now I'm doing the next step and taking some other steps which um, I'm not at liberty to describe here, okay. but um, will become uh, will become known shortly. They don't give clear information to the candidates, is what I've discovered. There's two. Uh, the reason is there's two steps to the endorsement process. They have the pre-endorsing conference, and then mm -hmm. they have the endorsing caucus, and those have two different rules. So it's it's the 20% of voting participants. This is like DSCC, DCC, CCO. All of these folks are in the pre-endorsing conference. And then for the endorsing caucus, it's 20% of the DSCC. So it sounds to me as if they gave you the wrong list, and they might have done that um, intentionally. It might have, you know, maybe not. But they do, they do tend to tilt, in my experience, the uh, system towards who they want to tilt it towards. You're being very charitable. Being charitable? You're, you're being charitable <laughs> in, in your description of them. I have no doubt it was done intentionally. I have no okay. doubt it was, it was done to protect um, Ms. Pelosi. Uh, yeah. Another friend of mine is running against um, Anthony Rendon in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. he, he is the Speaker of the Assembly, and he's the individual who blocked the passage of uh, right. single payer in California. She, she had a similar experience to me. Uh, she turned in enough signatures, and um, then she turned in hers in. The signatures were due at 5 p.m. on a particular day. She turned right. hers in at 11 a.m. And what happened is um, a, an individual in the California Democratic Party then disclosed her signatures, all the people who signed her petition, to Rendon's campaign. And they got on the phone wow. and started calling these people, and they were successful in bullying and intimidating two of the signatories the next day to change their vote. And, and rescind their signatures 
and again, once again, after everything was done and, and the door was closed, and then they told my friend, her name is Maria Estrada, they told mm-hmm. her, too bad, you lost too. So they, they did another version of uh, changing the rules uh, after the game is over or moving the goalposts. And again, it was to protect uh, an entrenched incumbent, Anthony Rendon. Right. They tried, they tried right. to do it with another candidate who's running against Diane Feinstein, but um, he beat them on it, but they tried it. So mm-hmm. it's a pattern, Tina, that the, yes, the, party is, the party is doing what's necessary to protect incumbents and blocking the way of uh, challengers, particularly progressive challengers. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's infuriating, actually. I know that there's currently, there's a endorsement F, which, so the group of delegates that we have down here in Southern California, for I'm in District 34, um, and also it laps over into the Assembly District uh, 51. So all of our delegates formed a group, and they're trying to reform Cal, Cal Dem Party stuff. They have an endorsement right now that is before the rules committee and instead of passing or reject it they referred it to the 2020 working group and this would basically eliminate the automatic endorsement process entirely um, i have a i have a feeling that the reason they referred it to 2020 is because they don't want to deal with it before the 2018 and the current election cycle and well that's exactly yeah that's exactly what yeah. they did to me when i when i when i escalated it to the next step they said thank you very much for your appeal We'll put this on the uh, credentials committee for its next regularly <laughs> right. scheduled meeting in July. Right, right. In, in July. July. I said, thank you very yeah. much, you know. Yeah, so these <laughs> these endorsements that we put in uh, or that this group put in was back in April. So this has been on the table mm-hmm. for a while. They also rejected a, a, a couple of them. They had one that would lower the, lower the threshold to introduce a substitute candidate at the convention from 75% to 70, which is only a 5% reduction. They rejected it. The rules committee did. They had another one to lower the number of delegate signatures needed. They rejected that. So it's very frustrating because they want to complain on the national level about voter suppression or undemocratic processes. But then when it comes to the way they deal with internal mechanisms, they don't seem to understand that these are sort of a similar way of of acting because it is voting, it is voter suppression. Whether, you know, if you want to thwart the will of the people, because your donor class wants a certain candidate, this isn't democracy. And it's, it's angering their constituency base. And I think right now we're looking at a reduction of registered Democrats down to what, 25% thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And we can't continue to, we can't continue to believe this way. And then, then they don't want to appeal to the independent voters, which are the majority in the country. We can't, we can't win an election unless we change something here. So I'm very much for, uh, reforming the Democratic Party. I think we are not fit to fight currently, and these are the reasons why. We're thwarting progressive candidates in the name of the donor class, more or less. Ah, it's very frustrating. Oh, um, yeah, so no. Well, you know, all the things that, that are being done are, are all a pattern to do two things. That's motivating one, keep the incumbents in their offices, and mm-hmm. two, within the party itself, to hold on to the positions of power that they have. You know, that's, that's really right. what it's about. That's what human nature is about. And uh, we're just seeing a little raw version of it, I think. Correct. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, power doesn't go out, don't, go, doesn't go down without a fight, so to speak. 
Um, so I wanted to ask you, you were, um, you're an attorney that works mainly in employment practices, from what I understand, and you, re- you represent the employee side, not the employer side. Uh, I read correct. about a case in okay. I read about a case in which you represented represented six African American police officers against the city of Richmond. Can you tell me a little bit about that case? Here, here's what happened with that case. That case was started by uh, a longtime friend of mine named Chris Dolan, who's um, certainly one of the leading trial lawyers in in California, and uh, he had the case four years. Just on the eve of trial, just a couple of months before trial of that case, uh, he was conflicted out of the case. There was a conflict of interest. He had to leave the case, and I I took over it. Um, The trial lasted three months. It was essentially a race discrimination case um, against uh, seven African-Americans. I represented six of them. Um, the The specific charges were failure to promote, retaliation, hostile environment, um, the kinds of things that are customary in in race discrimination cases. It was tried in the city of Martinez, which is where Hmm. the Martinez, um, and it was an all-white jury. It was an all-white jury. Um, That was not because there weren't, uh, there, there were black people kicked off the jury. There just weren't any really to put on it. The demographics are, are such. And um, I lost the case, uh, but I sometimes um, take cases not because I think I can win them. Um, I take, I'll take a case if it's the right thing to do, because sometimes making the statement is more important than the result of the, of the thing. And I really feel the Richmond case was that. Um, things really uh, changed after that case uh, in the police department. So in that sense, I feel it was a real victory. Okay. You also work in an area uh, in regards, regards to arbitration, which I think is a real problem in our system. So let's talk a little bit about mandatory arbitration and how it's affected workers' rights. Well, it, it essentially obliterated a great many of the workers' rights. The primary one, of course, is the ability to seek relief and remedies in a court. Um, mm-hmm. The private arbitration system I think uh, the way I describe it was it, it was a uh, a good idea run amok. <laughs> um, yeah. There, I mean, it started I think with uh, a singular, a particular case called Armendariz uh, versus mm-hmm. United Healthcare um, some years ago, and um, the Supreme Court says, you know, if the employee signs the contract, it's a contract and it's binding. And enforceable. So if you sign an arbitration agreement, that's it. You're stuck. But mm-hmm. what they did was, I think, well intentionally saying, but if the employer forces the employee to go to arbitration, then the employer has to pay for the arbitrator because the employee shouldn't have to go out of pocket to uh, mm-hmm. seek his remedies. Um, well, that didn't work, and that has not worked because what has happened is there's this huge arbitration industry that has arisen to arbitrate employment cases and it didn't take the arbitrators very long to figure out who's paying who's who's paying their uh, their salary their bills the employers so they figured right. out the they figured out the more victories we give to the employers they are likely to become return customers mm-hmm. so they start they started ruling in favor of the employers and that has remained the same to this day, um, I think there's about an 80 percent 
uh, rate for employers in arbitration. Wow. 80%. So most employees don't, you know, don't bother to even do it. Um, the courts are much more, more generous. And people don't realize that man, how, how deeply the, uh, the notion of mandatory arbitration has, has pervaded our entire society. If you buy an airline ticket, if you sign up for a credit card, if you go to a medical doctor or hospital, in almost every area of your life, when you sign those papers, buried in there in small print is a mandatory mm-hmm. arbitration clause. So beware. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, beware. It's just no. one, more, one more way corporate America is uh, taking control of our judicial system. So no. you've also been a staunch advocate for single-payer health care, which is fantastic, and Nancy Pelosi has not been. So do you think voters currently see this as a litmus test? I know I do. I don't know if that's just my personal preference, but I have come to the conclusion that I only want to support candidates that are promoting uh, single-payer health care. Um, so what are your um, thoughts on that and the California state bill and what happened with that? Well, um, the first question is, is it a litmus test? Well, it is for yeah. people who think. It, it is for people who think um, because, the yeah. you know, we're the only – Good answer. We're the only – yeah, we're – we're the only industrialized country in the world that does right. not provide for the universal health care of its citizens. Why should right. we be different? It's a hundred percent based on the greed and profit motive of the people mm-hmm. um, behind it. Um, the reason Ms. Pelosi doesn't, uh, you know, promote it, she actually opposes it uh, is because she gets tremendous donations from big pharma for-profit insurance companies and healthcare providers who have a big stake in never seeing uh, single-payer become law. So, right. Um, that's uh, that's why she does that. In terms of the uh, five two six, the single-payer bill, yeah. Yeah. Um, my understanding, and it's, it's just political gossip and speculation, that Rendon, you know, was chosen to fall on his sword and shelve the bill. Because right. uh, the governor, because Governor Brown did not want to be the first governor to veto a single-payer health care bill, so mm-hmm. he was kind of instructed. From uh, and it's interesting you bring bring this subject up right after we finish talking about arbitration, because a couple of years ago, um, the California legislature passed both houses passed and sent to Brown a bill abolishing mandatory employment arbitration. Mm. Do I need to say that again? The bill abolished mandatory employment arbitration. And the governor Which would have been great. It. Yeah, and the governor, governor Brown ve- has not been our friend. He, he vetoed it. So um, I have no difficulty believing he would have vetoed uh, if that had come before him. So Rendon is now fighting my friend Maria and the recall and everything else. Right. She's great. I'm glad she's going to run against him. Yeah, Governor Brown has not been, he's not a very progressive governor. He has also overseen uh, more decreases in the UC budget a few months back. He uh, had agreed to a certain amount with uh, Janet Napolitaniano, and then he ended up taking back some of the money to fund private university loans, which blew my mind. The UC system is now funded at such a low rate, it's less than 10% of the state of that budget comes from the state. And this is supposed to be public education. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he's nothing about what you said would surprise me in the least bit. 
Um, you have a very interesting, or at least what I thought was a very interesting uh, wage plan for minimum wage that would do a lot to relieve the income inequality in this country. Can you walk us through your plan? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I can't claim sole ownership of this idea, um, but uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Uh, I believe right. that the minimum wage should be immediately raised to 15 across the board and across the country. And then I think it should be indexed to the cost of living for the place that the minimum wage is paid. So mm -hmm. therefore, the cost of living, <clears throat> excuse me, where I live in San Francisco is probably as high as it is anywhere in the country. Um, and then there's other places, uh, maybe Wyoming or uh, Iowa or other places in the Midwest and the South where the cost of living is much lower. So the people living in San Francisco would get a higher minimum wage in absolute dollars than the people who are living in the rural areas. But the buying power of their money would be the same in the two locations right. because of the cost of living difference. So I right. think I feel that is equitable, and mm -hmm. uh, that's what I would. That's what I'm proposing. No, and I agree because here in Los Angeles, the cost of living is astronomically high, and it's impossible to get by with a $15 minimum wage. And the city raised, we have a, a higher minimum wage here than we did on the city level, and it's still not going to be enough. I think to really get by in the city of L.A., just and I'm talking about minimal minimal rent and food on the table, just the basics, is $22, $23 an hour. It's just not possible otherwise. So I think your plan makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what would you say to, just to play devil's advocate, what would you say to the folks that try to make this argument? My personal belief is to me is the minimum threshold that we want to accept as a society, what we find as tolerable. But you often hear folks saying we shouldn't have a raised minimum wage because workers need to go get skills and why should they make more money if they have no skills sort of an argument, which I think is bankrupt. What, what is your response to those folks? Well, I haven't heard that argument, but listening to you say it, um, I think there's a disconnect. I don't understand yeah. the, the connection between a minimum wage to sustain life and support yourself and hopefully your family and going to get skills. I guess the argument is there's no incentive to go get skills if we're going to pay these people a minimum, a higher minimum wage, which um, that's not very yeah, that's, persuasive to me. No, it's not very persuasive. It's, you know, it's, it comes from the neoist. And when I say neoist, I say neoist because neoliberals and neocons are more or less the same group that, but that seems to be a confusing thing for a lot of folks. Uh, so from a philosophical point of view, what they're basically saying is the, the free market is the moral arbiter. And if the free market's telling somebody that has no skills that they're not worth that more than $8 an hour because that's all there is as a job, then that's an acceptable thing. I disagree with that. I don't think we should accept that as a society. No, I, I agree with you. I think that as a society, um, the people have a right to be willing people, willing and able to work, uh, have a right to earn a, um, a wage uh, which they can live on. A live, uh, you know, it's sometimes called a living wage. Right. Um, people, have, people have a right to do that. Um, you, you can't support a family on a minimum wage, I don't think anywhere in the U.S. right now, um, on a pure minimum yeah, no. wage. That's what, I, and, the majority of, and the majority of minimum wage jobs now, I think, are part-time anyway. Right, correct. And, you know, and then you have situations where you have the CEO pay that's so much inflated compared to the average worker. I think I saw a study last week that had Walmart CEO was making 
850 times what their average worker was getting paid. This is an absolutely crazy income inequality that we're looking at. This is worse than it was in the 20s, and I don't see how this is sustainable. Even if you're a member of the 1%, at some point you're going to have to come to terms with the idea that you're destroying the consumer base. And if there's no consumer base, there's nobody left to sell widgets to, you will eventually suffer as well. But they seem to be so motivated by their greed that they can't see the future of that or the bigger picture, so to speak. Um, So I know you've been a a bigger proponent of getting money out of politics uh, for this reason. Oh, yeah. You were part of, I thought it was interesting, you were an advocate for Democratic clubs, not when I say Democratic, I mean Democrat Party clubs, to disclose their funding. And I don't think a lot of people realize that this is an issue. So you can have a club and you can also have a think tank or a nonprofit, and they're also taking money from corporations, and they're also involved Mm -hmm. in certain forms of quid pro quo. Uh, So give us a little bit of information about how this became an interest to you and what you did. A couple of years ago, there there was a club. Well, the club still exists. Uh, it was called the RFK Club, Robert F. Kennedy Club, um, and it was horribly misnamed because it was pretty much of a uh, Republican light club mm-hmm. that was used <laughs> as a as a money laundering device um, to um, shove you know a million dollars in one year uh, in 2016 into uh, various candidates' campaigns. Wow. A uh, th- couple of things happened. One, um, the Kennedy family wrote the club and said, take the name off the club. Um, this has nothing to do with Robert F. Kennedy, which they had to do. So now it's called the United Democratic Club. But I, I started, uh, I'm the president of our local Dem club here in District mm-hmm. 6, and um, we passed a resolution requiring that Democratic chartered clubs, in order to retain their charter, have to disclose the sources of their income and where they spend it. Well, the RFK slash UDC club, the one I'm talking about, they didn't want to do that because they took in over a million dollars and passed it out to a bunch of pro real estate candidates. And wow. uh, I call them Republican light uh, here. Yeah. Um, and so we passed that. Then another Dem club here, chartered Dem club, uh, the Potrero Hill club, they passed it. Then I took it to the, um, county Central Committee, the DCCC, San mm-hmm. Francisco, and mm-hmm. um, advocated for months for that and, and lobbied all of them. And they passed it unanimously. Unheard of that they would pass it unanimously. Wow, so yeah. um, it was a really good dark money, anti-dark money, I should say, um, resolution and uh, kind of legislation bylaw change at the DCCC level that requires these clubs now they've got to file returns and they have to show us transparency they have to show us where they're getting their money and who they're spending it on and i think that'll go part of the way to uh stopping the dark money in the clubs but i'm very much for public financing of campaigns anyway to mitigate the effects of uh, the citizens united case Um, we really need to do that at the federal level so that challengers don't have to rely and go beg for money from corporations, and they'll get corporations out of the politics business, which is the ultimate goal. Uh, no, I think that's fantastic. A lot of folks don't realize that the Chartered Democrat Club 
have delegates that serve. So they, they do have power. So if you have some quid pro quo going on internally, it can affect the outcome of races. So this is yeah. an important step. And um, thank you for uh, spearheading that effort. Have you been following the uh, effort to add the 28th Amendment to the Constitution to overturn Citizens United? Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's one of my platform blanks. Is, is, oh, great. Is, uh, um, to, to, uh, if I'm elected, I will introduce a constitutional amendment. Uh, Fantastic. Um, saying it will say that uh, the First Amendment freedom of speech it belongs solely to natural persons, not to corporations, partnerships, and other uh, fictional, legally fictional entities. Freedom of speech belongs to people. Uh, which is important. Also, I wanted, speaking of the First Amendment, I wanted to ask you a, a question about the No Establishment Clause, which is something that's sort of embedded in the First Amendment. It fundamentally mm-hmm. supports this idea that there's no religion in government. And I think this is a necessary component, component in maintaining our freedom of religion, because you can't have freedom of religion if you have any sort of religion involved in the government of any sort. It has to, there has to be that wall. But the religious right often insists that it doesn't work both ways, i.e. no government and religion, but there can be religion in government. Now, aside from the fact this is very poor logic, it's like saying A and negative A are true at the same time. Uh, what is your response to these folks? Because I think they are uh, very vocal in their beliefs, and they have affected, not necessarily in the state of California, but they have affected legislation in other states. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Tina, <laughs> I am I am of a really extreme view on this on this issue, and I have been my whole life. Um, I think that the First Amendment says no establishment, and that's exactly what it means. It means mm-hmm. no government and religion, and no religion and government. I mean, I am at the. I believe we should take under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. I believe we should take in God we trust off our coins. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do take a rather extreme view of this. I don't think that's extreme. And you know what? Thank we, you. We added those things. They weren't there at the inception of our country. Our pledge added that during McCarthyism. So these are not necessarily things that were innate to our founding fathers' beliefs. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember as a young kid in school, in grade school, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance before Under God was added. And it was weird mm-hmm. when they added it in because we weren't used yeah. to saying it. <laughs> yeah. We weren't used to saying it. It's, it's like adding words to a song you love and know very well, and all of a sudden it's got new lyrics. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I strongly disagree with the religious right. I, I don't think that, and I do think, just as you said, that the whole point of the First Amendment is to protect religious freedom, um, mm-hmm. We are, you know, a lot of people say, well, we're a Christian nation. No. The word God no, nowhere appears. The word God nowhere appears in the U.S. Constitution. Nowhere. Right. It, nowhere. It's not there. But, um, well, I could talk to you all day about this. So. <laughs> well, you know, I find it very interesting. And, and in general, they bring up these papers for, from uh, Thomas Jefferson. And that was in regards to the Baptist Church, and I still don't see how can they they can make this argument. I think I think it's pretty clear that for the government to be separated from religion, there can't be any any sort of religion involved. So I don't think this is an extreme viewpoint at all. I think it's the correct one. But I've just noticed over the last few decades that their viewpoints have been seeping in little by little, 
into not only legislation but also judicial rulings. And it's a little bit disturbing for me because I feel like, you know, it feel like it's almost like being on a slippery slope. Well, it is being on a slippery slope. I think the worst judicial ruling that was religion influenced was called the the Hobby Lobby ruling. Do you know that? Case? Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. Right. No, you say let's talk a little bit about that um, for the audience that's not familiar. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was a religious infiltration? Yeah. Um, there was a um, a case. There's a, a chain of hobby stores called Hobby Lobby, and um, there was the owner. It was apparently a a very religious person, and he said, "Under my religion, we're not allowed to pay for certain kinds of medical procedures, or we don't like certain kinds of medical procedures, such as abortions, sex change operations, and things mm-hmm. like that." And um, he brought a lawsuit to enforce his company's right to exclude those from the health care benefits um, that are provided um, to his employees. And he won. He won in the U.S. Supreme Court. And it has unleashed right. a whole torrent of religious-related claims, not just in health care, but um, there was the wedding cake issue. That's, I think, in front of the Supreme Court right now, where uh, mm-hmm. a bakery refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because the bakery said it offends their religious sensibilities. And that's under right. litigation. So now the door has been opened by the Hobby Lobby case to people essentially refusing to do anything based on strong religious beliefs. Suppose you had a restaurant that re- religious uh, refused to uh, serve uh, gay people. Could they mm-hmm. exclude gay people? Uh, same logic would apply. Or, or uh, African American people, or Asians, or Jewish right. people. You know, people right. can say, "I'm sorry, I'm this uh, sends my religious sensibilities." So, uh, we're living in in dark times. In that I sense. don't disagree. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, you also believe that there is a, a relationship between homelessness and lack of health insurance in the state. Uh, what is the connection, and how do we fix it? Well. If, if we had universal health care, all right, um, yeah. then the, the 50 or 60% of the people living on the street who are indisputably severely mentally ill would mm-hmm. be able to be taken care of and hopefully would be off the street. Um, it, it's one of the greatest tragedies of certainly my life is what I, what I see walking around every day or people just walking around muttering to themselves, sometimes poorly dressed, who are not, according to the medical people and the police, are not sick enough to meet the criteria to be taken somewhere to treat them or make them safe. They're not a danger. According to them, they're not a, it's called DTS, DTO, danger to self, danger to others. They're just walking around muttering to themselves. (laughs) And so they sleep on the sidewalk and, you know, a lot of them don't survive. And they are severely right. mentally ill, and they fall through the cracks of our system. And I think um, single-payer, Medicare for All, would go a long ways towards fixing that issue. That's the connection I make. Yeah, no, and I, I don't disagree. And we can go back to Ronald Reagan uh, and blame him squarely for this issue, as he is the person that defunded more or less our uh, 
health, mental health hospitals. Uh, and I feel like, well, you know. Well, he did, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend, I don't like Reagan, okay. uh, but I'm going to defend <laughs> one aspect of this, which okay. is it's not just Reagan we should blame, because he didn't defund the mental hospitals per se. He wanted community-based treatment of mentally ill people so they are so they aren't all collected in large state institutions where people had to drive hours to see their family when the people left those state hospitals the individual counties were supposed to create community mental health treatments and facilities to accept mm-hmm. the people and they didn't do it they didn't do it and that's how they all wound up on the street or just you know in in other worse places I was going to say, was the state also providing funding for the counties to set up the hospitals and they just chose not to do it? Some of it, yes, but it was going to cost the county some money. Okay. But the counties, the county should take, care of the, should take care of the mentally ill people within them. They should participate in that. I think it's a tragedy yeah. that we currently, we really don't have a system to care for these folks. And, you know, we have 10 cities downtown L.A. that are now being uh, – overrun by gangs on top of it. So here you already have a, a, a group of folks that aren't getting the services they need, and now they're being uh, controlled by gangs. And a lot, of, a lot of them are addicted to drugs, unfortunately, which I also think is a public health issue. Yes. I don't think we should be criminalizing that at all. And it seems like these folks are falling through the crack, and the argument that we can't afford to do anything I think is baseless because in the long run what we're doing now is actually costing us more money. Um, so I would like every to time every time I hear somebody in the government say we can't afford that I I bring up our military budget which is over seven hundred <laughs> billion dollars and That's is crazy. just grossly obscene it it truly is obscene and one of my uh, one of my lines you'll hear me uh, I have said over and over and over again the United States is addicted to being in a perpetual state of war. And the reason we are doing that, it used to be when we needed to take military action, the factories would provide the weapons or, the, or the, whatever the equipment was, and off to war we went. Now everything mm-hmm. is turned on its head. Instead of right. making weapons in order for us to go to war, we go to war to keep the factories busy and to make weapons. It's completely stood on its head. The economy is addicted to being in war. And yep. we build so many weapons that the United States is now trying to force NATO. This happened a couple of weeks ago. NATO allies to buy our weapons because we got far more than we can ever possibly use. And it's pushing off surplus military uh, weapons. You know where it's going? It's going to police departments. And it's raised mm-hmm. this whole it's raised this whole milita- military. It's a hard word to say. Militarization of yeah. uh, of the police because they're getting you know armored personnel carriers and little tanks and everything, which is crazy. Military industrial complex. Yes, that was President Eisenhower in his farewell. Oh, Eisenhower. Address. Okay, that's right. It was Eisenhower. Yeah, I mean, so you had Eisenhower back then saying that this was going to end up happening if we stayed on the on the path that we were on, and now it's it's uh, the budget is asinine. They just raised it more, and we had Democratic. Uh, we had Democrats voting yes on this as well. It wasn't just Republicans. In, including Nancy Pelosi. In, of course. That's a given. She's, uh, yes. she's very much been supportive of the war effort. And look, at you had a lot of folks in Hillary Clinton's campaign that 
that deal in defense contracting and arms trade. So it's very much ingrained in the neo-West society that war is a perpetual state. When they protect empire, they're not protecting the country. They're protecting the corporations and the multinational corporations that do these, the business abroad or that sell weapons. It's all about their profits. And I feel very strongly that they use moral arguments to sort of mask that. But I think the country is waking up to the reality of what we're in because we don't have money to fund the things that we need to fund in this country because of it. We have infrastructure problems. We have definanced our school system. Yes. Uh, the student debt crisis is asinine. So what, our priorities are very messed up, and this is one of the biggest reasons why I, I completely agree with you. So what, as a, as a congressperson, what can you do to sort of stop that, shut that down, and, and change um, – change the direction we're headed in well the first thing i would do is vote again i mean vote against it every chance i get and stand right. up you know i mean the vote you know democrats should not be voting for that budget um i if they don't want to be a democrat then change your party but if you're gonna if you're right. gonna say you adhere to the democratic party values then mm-hmm. then you know don't just talk the talk you got to walk the walk and vote against it and lobby your colleagues for it, and uh, I think we need more progressives in the Congress, and I think uh, right. it would start making a difference. Yeah, I agree. Do you think this last go-around where, where you had – so they shut down the, the government, and I'm not sure what they gained from this because they ended up conceding everything to the Republicans anyway. I don't understand what's, what's going on with the party, that they, they can't stick to their guns or, or, you know, if you're going to go for two days of shutting the gun, Go for the third or fourth and gain something from it. But what they did this last round was just turn around and say, "Okay, you win, Uncle." Why? Why does this keep happening in your in your opinion? Um, I can't get in the minds of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, but I can speculate. <laughs> I can right. speculate upon you know what's motivating them. Um, one is um, they either don't share the democratic values that. Uh, the progressives or most Democrats do, or they are, the other one that occurs to me, they're spineless and they just don't have the, the will or the spine to stand up to, to uh, the Republicans uh, right. or they're voting or they're voting their donors. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I know that, I know that Pelosi gets donations from military contractors and their lobbyists and mm-hmm. that they might've put pressure on her saying, you want to see this money uh, before we shut off the, the spigot here. You better you better vote for us, but um, she should she should not have voted for that budget. And had I been in Congress, I would not have voted, and I would have stood up and opposed it. Right. You know, and we made no progress on DACA. I don't understand why they thought there would be any sort of conversation after the fact. They literally gave away all of their leverage. Yeah. And Somebody now said they're... it was like. It was like the old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy keeps putting the football down and she tells Charlie Brown, go ahead and kick it. And, of course, at the last minute, she pulls it away, and, and he just keeps doing it. You know, they, they thought they were going to make a deal with the Republicans, so they made their deal, and, of course, they pulled the football away. So. Yeah, no, that is absolutely the perfect analogy. And I don't understand why they keep thinking they're not going to pull the football away. They have a history of doing it. You're well, also an advocate – for affordable housing, uh, there's a currently a bill here in California, AB 1506, that would mm-hmm. repeal the Costa Hawkins rental housing. 
uh, bill in the state, it would allow local government to take action against unfair rent increases, displacement, gentrification, which has become an enormous problem here in California. Um, well, that, that's a litmus you... test for me, Costa Hopkins okay. and, and, the, and the Ellis Act. If you think both those laws should remain in place, then uh, I'm not really interested in having uh, further conversation with conversation. you about the issue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Those are draconian, so, those are draconian laws. Uh, Prop 13 has to be reformed so it does not apply to commercial transactions, which would create billions and billions of dollars of revenue. Billions of dollars, the property taxes. You've got, uh, you know, friend of, I have a lot of friends in Richmond, California. There's a right. monster, monster Chevron refinery there. And they're paying their property taxes based on, on when they bought it, which was what, 60, 70 years ago? Wow, yeah. If, if, that, if that plant was reassessed today, um, it would create just hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Of, uh, of real estate taxes. So that has to be changed. Prop 13 has to be changed. I, I think you're 100% correct on that. Um, and I don't think a lot of folks realize that Prop 13 also applies to commercial real estate. So they think that they're protecting only the residential uh, middle America sort of housing, but it's not the case. This has been a huge handout for corporations as well, and it should have been, it should have, they should have exempted commercial transactions from this. Also, let me, now that we're talking about Prop 13, I think this is an important thing to discuss. I think it also has placed a bit of a burden on future generations. When I, for example, when I purchased my house here in Los Angeles, the person I purchased my house from was only paying $250 a year in property taxes. Right. Uh, suffice it to say, I pay thousands more than that. <laughs> so, um, which is fine. It goes to fund schools and things, but it seems to me that it's very unequitable at this particular junction. Is there a way to sort of smooth that out? I think I think so. Um, I see both sides of that coin. Um, right, I, don't I can want, see both sides. I don't want to have uh, older people who have lived in the house for, you know, decades be thrown onto the street because the law changes and they can't afford the property taxes. The taxes, right. I agree. Right. Uh, so, on the other hand, I see the growth inequity of two stand, you know, side-by-side houses that are essentially the same in a in a housing tract, and one's paying 500 a month, the 500 a year, and the other one's paying 7,000 a year for the exactly. same house. You know, which yeah. is obviously not fair. What I have in mind, and this is a state law that a federal, I wouldn't have much to say about this other than uh, lobbying for it, but I think that um, if somebody is in a house and has lived there a very long time and Prop 13 has changed, there ought to be a maybe 20-year phase-in, 5% a year of the increases, mm. so, so that the elderly person could probably afford to stay there as long as they wanted to, uh, and they wouldn't get kicked onto the street, but as time went by, it became more and more equitable until it evened out to the mar- you know, what the other market rate is. You know, that actually sounds like a fair solution um, because you're right. I don't want to see people that could be thrown out of their houses because they can't afford the increases, but it is also unfair that somebody is paying, you know, $70,000 and the guy next door is paying three hundred. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem equitable. Uh, so in the recent tax reform bill that was uh, passed, you saw, we saw as a nation, we saw a huge, cru- huge uh, cut in the corporate tax rate. 
it, it isn't really about that rate. It's about the effective rate that they're already paying. Some corporations are paying 0%. Some of them are offshored so much money that they're paying less than 0%. Others are paying 6%. But nobody's paying a marginal rate of 35%, mm -hmm. low and 20%. And I think it should have gone the other way. I think we've been closing loopholes that would have forced the corporations to pay their fair share. They're not paying their fair share now. I think you hit the nail on the head. For me, it's not so much about the, uh, the corporate tax rate on their net profits. It's about the loopholes uh, in the tax law which allow monster corporations, one of them that I keep hearing about is GE, oh, yeah, to, pay zero, to, to pay zero taxes because they have yeah. figured out a way to, to, to zero out their net income by loopholes right. and investments and deferments and depletions, and I don't even know all the tax laws. You know? I think the big so one is the think, offshoring of money. They, they make yes. money in the Bahamas, Ireland. There's, there's, they right. pace the country that allows them to have no income tax paid. And then when they try to bring the money back into the United States, the Congress, and, and if you get elected, I hope you get elected, you, you might see this happen, Every five or six years, they bring in a bill that allows them to repatriate the money at five or six percent. So again, yeah. they're getting a massive cut, and they offshore this money billions of dollars year after year after yeah. year until they get that lobby. They get lobby to get a bill passed to do this, and it's it's a yeah. pattern. Yeah. So my my answer is yeah, raise you know don't cut the corporate tax rate, keep it at a level that's fair, but uh, almost as important or just as, or more important is get rid of the loopholes that allows mm -hmm. them to escape being taxed at all because yeah. <laughs> most corporations manage, you know, manage to try to zero out their income every mm -hmm. year. There was a bit of a scandal this past year when it came to light, had defended um, the practice of, of what I'm going to refer to as involuntary servitude. So we had, uh, we had, a, we had to go back to, to 2011. We, SCOTUS ruled against our prisons being overpopulated and that they were in violation of the constitutional prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. So there was a mandate for the state to release, um, you know, people that were just smoking pot. These were nonviolent offenses. And Kamala Harris's office went to court and basically said, no, we can't do it. We, it would really screw up our labor pool. Um, and we're talking about a labor pool that was being paid 8 to 37 cents an hour. In my opinion, this is exceedingly immoral. I don't understand how this has been going on in the state. Michelle Alexander, who is one of my favorite advocates, has uh, referred to this practice as the new Jim Crow. Um, so what are your thoughts on this, and how do we correct the for-profit prison system? Well, I think for-profit prisons and private prisons should be abolished. Yeah. Uh, just the whole concept. I think it is immoral to make money and to seek to make money off uh, incarcerating human beings. Okay. So mm -hmm. I mean, at that level, I think they should be gone. Um, if the, if they are going to exist, and if you are going to have labor, why should is the labor of a prisoner intrinsically less valuable than the labor of somebody not in prison? Why well, it's mm -hmm. not. It's not. I think they should be paid a fair, you know, the, maybe the minimum wage we're talking about earlier for their labor. They should have the option not to do it if they want. So do you right. feel that, that it's been incentivized to have uh, harsher prison terms? 
longer prison terms for uh, things like smoking marijuana. Do you think that's sort of baked into the system at this point between the for-profit prisons and the ability for them to use involuntary servitude, which is, which is in the Constitution? I mean, we should maybe talk about that for a second. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, and here's the part you're referring to, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So it's the phrase, except as a punishment for a crime. Okay, that's so that's the, to. yeah, so that's the, that's the argument that these folks are using that says justifies what they're doing. What do you think of that? Well, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it, and, and I just do not see um, the, I don't see a connection between the, even if they're allowed to make them work within the prison, uh, mm-hmm. I don't see this, I don't construe it, let me say it loyally, like, I don't construe this phrase to authorize uh, the use of prison labor to make a profit for another private third party. Right. And what about the practice of using prisoners as firefighters? This has been a controversy of late as well. Uh, a big chunk of firefighters in the state of California are trained uh, prisoners. I think if they if they want to fight fires and they're courageous enough to do it, they ought to be allowed to do it and be paid for it, and maybe get maybe get time off their sentence for doing it. Right. Right, I think there's a way to fix that situation, which it makes sense, because I could I could understand how a prisoner uh, would want to learn a trade and would want to have something to do while they're in prison, and maybe not paying them 8 or 37 cents an hour is the answer, but you're right, maybe they get time off, maybe they get paid something actually equitable for the work they're doing, because this is a very dangerous job. Uh, well, hell, I mean, it's, it's got to be minimum wage or more. It's a, it's a hazardous job. As far as uh, the rest of your platform, what what would be the main thing that you would work on? Well, we've talked about a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> cer- certainly, certainly single payer. Um, one of the I want to abolish super delegates in the Democratic Party. Um, right. I think they're. I, I actually think they're unconstitutional um, because they um, diminish the effect of people voting in primaries. They take away the votes of people who in good faith vote in the primaries, the superdelegates. Mm-hmm. That's that's important to me. Um, I'm a, a very strong advocate for the severely mentally ill. Um, I want to decriminalize mental illness in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because we are criminalizing it now. The biggest providers of um, mental health care in the United States are the jails and prisons. Mm. They have more people in them than the hospitals or, or uh, clinics. And that's, that's got to stop. And uh, some of those people don't belong in, in prison. They belong in hospitals. So right. that's certainly a, a very big platform of mine. Um, the anti-war, anti-intervention is a big one, and that ties into the, um, into the um, military budget that we were talking about. And mm-hmm. uh, the individual tax rates. You know, I grew up in a time when um, the uh, in the most prosperous time the U.S. has ever known, which is essentially uh, end of World War II up to about the 60s. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the tax rates during that time topped out at 92%. Right. 92%. Mm-hmm. And every and it was everything was fine. Um, the more money you make, the higher tax you paid. But um, everyone was making, yeah, everyone was doing fine. So I think that we ought to go back to that kind of a system and um, make it fair. Yeah. We have to, this one percenters, we got to start taxing them. Uh, yeah. Something that is proportionally representative of how much of the money that they are making. Right. Even under Reagan, for most of his years, the highest rate was 50%. I think people have gotten so used to these really low rates that they don't know what the history of that is. I'm glad you're bringing that up. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Henry Wallace, who was replaced with Truman during the convention, um, reminds me quite a bit of the situation with Bernie Sanders. I think the Democratic Party has a history of thwarting progressive candidates if they are too threatening against uh, the one percent or the corporations or the moneyed interests or the donor class and I felt like this was a little bit of a repeat of that maybe a little bit I'm not that familiar with Wallace but I think that the progressive movement now is um, a little more of a grassroots movement than it may have been during Wallace's time I think okay. that the technology and communication has become such that it's not just political activists who know what's going on um, because of the internet and TV and uh, mostly, you know, mostly the internet, I think. Um, mm-hmm. The political ideas are reaching out to people. It's one of the reasons we're so divided, too, is because people are jumping on one side or the other. But um, I, I think that the progressive movement or whatever you want to call it. I wish there were a new word because everyone's calling themselves a progressive now. Um, I think it's inevitable that it will come to um, take over the majority of the Democratic Party, and even though the other side is fighting very hard right now. But um, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more of a cautious optimist. It's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I'm running for office. Um, uh, it, my election is really not about me. Um, I'm running here in the 12th district because that's where I live, but my election is really kind of a referendum on um, the incumbent, and um, she is kind of the symbol of everything that I'm running against as a person. Um, she is a one percenter. She's got mm, an amazing, amazing amount of money. You know, she's I hear estimates like 200 million dollars, and that's her, not her husband, who has an equal amount of wealth. So um, my election is important, and that's one of the reasons I'm working so hard. So in the district that uh, that you're in, District 12, are you making headway? I know you've, you've gotten a lot of attention from outside your district, but you have to have the votes inside your district if you're going to win your election. You can be popular on Twitter. You can be popular with folks in Southern California mm-hmm. like myself or people in New York, but you're not going to be able to win an election unless you win the hearts and minds of the voters in your district. How how is that going for you? Do you are you making headway? Are you are you is your message uh, being well received? Are people angry about some of the, the positions that Nancy's taken? Um, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think so. It's very hard to gauge where a campaign is because there's no polls out there or anything like that. Mm-hmm. 
but um, I have a real sense that in the last month or two, the uh, campaign is really gaining a lot of traction um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that um, we also, uh, our, our mayor dropped dead, I think about a month ago, maybe a little more. And, right. Um, now there's going to be a mayor's election in, in the same date as uh, during the primary date. And oh, that's, that's gonna good, actually. Really, oh, it's very good. It's going to really increase yeah. the turnout, you know, and that yeah, that has per, perked up the campaign. Um, I've been endorsed by um, a number of organizations, uh, all the OR, um, all the OR uh, chapters here, including the, the, except for one who's scheduled to do it March 6th um, mm-hmm. okay. here in the Bay, here in the Bay Area. Um, and I just, you know, the best judgment I can make is just when walking around and talking to people, um, it seems that uh, everyone I talk to, that sure, there have been some people say, oh, I'm a Nancy person, don't talk to me. But the majority of the people that I walk up to congratulate me and thank me for running and saying, that's great. You, you, know, great. you should really, uh, you should really do it. So. Um, I guess we'll find out June 5th about right. uh, what, what's going on. Um, because of the top two primaries that we have in California, I expect to finish a strong second and uh, go on to the general election. So I'm feeling optimistic about that. How many people are running in your primary total? Um, so I run in the same primaries as Democrats, Republicans, Greens. That's the way right. California works. So the people that I'm paying attention to, well, I'm not really. I'm running against Nancy Pelosi. I'm really not running against anybody else. Um, But the other Democrat is a 24-year-old second-year law student. Um, And there's a Green Party candidate who runs every time against uh, Ms. Pelosi and uh, does does okay. But uh, I don't think he has a realistic chance to do this. Okay. So, uh, and there's Republicans. Um, I think there's two or three of them here in the city. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, they won't win anything. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's my sense that after the primary, if I can finish second or particularly a strong second, all those other people drop off the ballot. And right. Then it's just two, and those, I think, for the most part, are my votes if they, if they vote. And I think they will vote not because they want to vote for me so much is because they want to vote in the mayor's election. And right. uh, when they're at, when they're at the poll, there's, there'll be the ballot. And I think they're inclined to vote for me, which would really be an anti uh, Pelosi vote. And I'm glad you're bringing up the way our system works because California does have a different system than the rest of the country. We have a semi open primary. So in, inside our primary system, you can vote on a candidate from any party, whether it's green Republican, uh, we have that strange peace and freedom party uh, down the list, and it's the top two candidates that go on to the the final round of voting. Right, Re- regardless of their party. Exactly, exactly. So I'm actually I, I support an open primary. So I'm glad that we do this. Um, we had some shenanigans in the last primary election at the mm-hmm. presidential level because the NPP, which is no party preference here in California. The MPP voters had to ask for a specific ba- ballot, otherwise they couldn't vote for Bernie Sanders. If they just got a straight ballot, he was not on there, and you had to ask for the one that, um, I forget what they called it, but it was a different ballot. And there was, so did you follow any of those shenanigans when you were working? Or just- I'm the lawyer. I'm the lawyer who filed the lawsuit against the Secretary of State and two county 
uh, clerks. I did not to, know that. To require, to require the poll workers to inform NPP voters that they had a right to choose one of two ballots, only one of which had Bernie's name on it. Yeah, I filed that lawsuit. Stephen, you're my hero. I did not know this. <laughs> <laughs> How did I not know that? I did not know you were the attorney behind that. Me and another lawyer named Bill Simpich were the two lawyers that filed that. Okay, so now did your lawsuit had to have, uh, had to have come prior to the primary day of election. Did you perceive this as, as a potential area that was going to be a problem? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we thought a lot of people didn't realize when they went to vote that they had a right to, uh, to vote for, uh, for Bernie. They didn't even know they, they did not know that they had the right to ask for a second ballot. They just showed up, said, I'm Joe Smith, and they would hand him the ballot without Bernie's name on it. And we were trying to, frankly, the, the lawsuit was intended to get a message out publicly, which it did, it worked. And, yeah, it did. Uh, that, that you have a right when you get there, Mr. NPP voter or Ms. NPP voter, you have a right to ask for the ballot. You have a right to say, I want the ballot with Bernie Sanders on it or something like that. So mm -hmm. it should be the onus of the poll worker to say to each voter that comes in that's registered NPP, which ballot do you want, the Republican one or the Democrat one? And that wasn't happening. That's correct. That's okay. what that was the lawsuit was about. Uh, so if somebody wants to donate to your campaign, where's the best place for them to go online to do that? You go to donate dot. Jaffe for Congress, J-A-F-F-E, the number four, the word congress.com. And what is your Twitter handle? Yeah, at Jaffe for Congress with the number four. Okay, great. But the best place to donate to your campaign is, is at your website. Yes, and that is, surprisingly enough, Jaffe for congress.com. <laughs> Oh!